0: Hello and welcome everyone to today's episode on the podcast. I had lots of intentions to make this a really, really thorough podcast episode with loads and loads of questions. But the more I spoke to our podcast guest of today, the more I realized that we actually don't know very much. And so many of the questions I thought I'd ask I never even asked because I kind of knew what the answer would be. I'm delighted to welcome back Dr. Vikram Talaulika, who runs a really busy NHS clinic at University College London Hospital. Vikram is a menopause specialist and is a fabulous trooper to support women in menopause, especially with a cancer diagnosis. Vikram has been on our podcast before, and if you're interested in the role of hormone replacement therapy, once you've had a cancer diagnosis, then look back through our episodes and go back to episode six and tune into that first. On today's episode, I want to talk to him about the role of testosterone. Testosterone has come up over and over again in our chat forum, in the Facebook group, on social media. And many, many women after a cancer diagnosis are becoming more interested in finding out about testosterone and whether perhaps it would be An interesting part or a good medication for them to use. But it's very hard to find information. I couldn't find much when I was just doing a bit of Googling. And so I thought, let's ask the expert. Now, at the end of the conversation, once Vikram leaves, I want to read a poem to you that kind of sums up this whole conversation. But before, Vikram, I'm really, really delighted that you're here and thank you for joining us.
1: Good morning, Dani. Thank you so much.
0: We've already started to chat a little bit, haven't we, Vikram? And so I'm glad I've pressed record. But explain to us, you are working under extreme pressures at the moment and life is super busy for you. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening within your amazing work within the NHS?
1: Yes. I mean, as, as everyone is probably aware about, um, NHS is under considerable stress, Um, And of course, there are emergency services, uh, acute gynecology services, um, and of course, maternity and other gynecological services, which are already under pressure. That sometimes means that um, services which relate to chronic health or hormones or or menopause-related services um, are not sometimes the priority for funding or research. And so therefore, of course, there is considerable uh, stress and pressure around in terms of such services. Uh, The waiting lists are really long. And I guess a lot of women and and patients who are listening to this podcast would have experienced that. They would have had to wait long to be seen. And a lot of women are having to consider private services uh, because the waiting lists are just six or or 12 months long. Hopefully, we are all working hard to do extra clinics, to recruit staff. Uh, hopefully, the future is bright, but for now, at the moment, it's it's considerable pressure.
0: So yes, your services, your work, you feel at total capacity, and you're working beyond. And I guess the intention with today's podcast is that we can help signpost, perhaps while someone is waiting for a for an appointment with a menopause specialist. Maybe we can help take the confusion out of all those people trying to Google stuff and not finding the relevant information. And so maybe this podcast can be sort of the groundwork for someone um, who are trying to explore testosterone as an option for them.
1: That's the idea. Perfect.
0: Let's start by um, perhaps you explaining to all of us about the role of testosterone. How is it needed? How is it made in a woman's body? What happens when we lose it, perhaps due to surgery or other circumstances after a cancer diagnosis? Let's um, start there.
1: Yeah, so testosterone is androgen, uh, which is traditionally classically thought to be a male hormone. But actually, it's not just a male hormone. Women produce testosterone alongside female hormones, which is estrogen. And in fact, more testosterone is produced than estrogen on a day-to-day basis. The slight difference is that estrogen primarily comes from ovaries and a little bit from the subcutaneous tissue or fat tissue. While the testosterone comes from two sources almost equally the ovaries and the adrenal glands, which sit on the top of the kidneys. Now, throughout the life of a woman, the testosterone has important roles, and I won't go into every detail, but it's mainly sexual function, uh, making sure that female secondary sexual characteristics are expressed. It has a role in the brain, the cognition. Uh, It has a few other roles in terms of uh, regulation of metabolism. And so testosterone is a very essential hormone throughout life. And as the woman will age, the levels will gradually come down. There's a natural decline in the levels of these hormones. It's a little different from estrogen because estrogen suddenly disappears at menopause. There's a sharp fall and it's almost over the cliff. Uh, But with testo, it's a little bit of a gradual fall you won't get that sharp cliff. So the amount of drop in testo at menopause is considerably slower and less as compared to the oestrogen.
0: And is testosterone or the loss of testosterone also used to physical or emotional symptoms? It is linked to symptoms. So women who are deficient in
1: testosterone, of course, will experience symptoms. The, the range is quite wide. So some women may not experience many symptoms at all or almost no symptoms, while others will be symptomatic. And those are really related to things like fatigue, tiredness, uh, changes in hair, skin. Uh, Some women do experience typical uh, brain fogging or cognitive difficulties, lack of sleep. Um, And those really are the main ones. But of course, the primary focus also is on sexual function. So drop in desire, libido, uh, which can significantly affect someone's sexual health. Uh, are, of course, the
0: main uh, symptom of lack of testosterone. So for today's podcast episode, we want to talk about the role of testosterone and using it as part of a hormone replacement therapy. But we know that's not so straightforward once you've had a cancer diagnosis. So are there certain cancers where testosterone is absolutely no contraindication? And when might testosterone have a contraindication?
1: So again, in terms of replacing testosterone, uh, first of all, there is the population which doesn't have the cancer. So women or individuals who've not had cancer and suffer from some of the symptoms, which we think are because of lack of testosterone, like low libido, low energy, brain fogging, mood fluctuation, those will benefit from testosterone. And we'll come to that slightly later, how we give testosterone, when do we start? But when it comes to cancer, of course, you have those cancers which are non-hormone dependent, as you rightly said, and this includes majority of cancers which are not linked to gynecological or reproductive organs, whether it's bowel, whether it's any other system, neurological system, leukemia, lymphoma. In all these, testosterone would be fine to be replaced as part of hormone replacement. That's because these are not hormone dependent cancers. But of course, you then look at the hormone-dependent cancers, and I guess we'll come to that slightly later, where estrogen or testosterone, which gets converted into estrogen, might have some implication in terms of increasing the recurrence risk. So in those situations, one has to waste the pros and cons, and sometimes testosterone may not be the optimum therapy.
0: And now tell me, from your practice in seeing so, 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 so many women who've had a cancer diagnosis and come and see you with their complex menopausal symptoms, has testosterone been used routinely for women who have no contraindication? Or is the role and use of testosterone therapy something quite new? Because for such a long time, we've focused on estrogen and replacing that with or without progesterone.
1: This is certainly new. So testosterone has been around for quite some time, for decades actually. And it was primarily used in the form of pellets or what we call as implants, small tablets of testosterone, which are inserted in the uh, tissue beneath the skin. But actually more and more uh, advances mean that testosterone is now available in gels and creams. Uh, and it's really the last 10 years so the last decade where everyone has started seeing testosterone as a useful add-on if symptoms are not responding to replacement of estrogen or progesterone. To the extent that some clinics now think all three hormones should be replaced as part of modern hormone replacement therapy, because the testosterone has a very good safety profile. Having said that, I think we're not there yet. We need more research. The best therapy that we often do is start with estrogen progesterone. And for those women who have symptoms related to testosterone deficiency, then add testosterone, which can help.
0: Now, and the question that bounces around quite a lot when I sort of read through people's social media feeds and comments is, would you test testosterone levels? Or is this, again, a bit like with other perimenopausal menopausal symptoms, very much based on symptoms alone?
1: It's really symptoms. And when you start testosterone, it's the side effects. So there's been a lot of controversy recently about whether one should test blood testosterone levels before starting therapy or when you continue. The problem with the tests is that some of the assays are not very accurate. There's so much variation in testosterone production from the adrenal gland uh, on a day-to-day basis or within a day. Mm -hmm. And of course, a lot of other factors such as hydration and a few others can affect your readings of the actual uh, measurement. And so as a general guideline, currently the BMS, the British Menopause Society, says you should do a baseline testosterone. And that is to identify women who already may be running high testosterone. Say, for example, some women may have polycystic ovaries or other uh, testosterone producing uh, tumors or something like that. You shouldn't be missing a baseline high testosterone. That's why the reason to do it. And then once you've confirmed the baseline is okay, and you start somebody on testosterone, then you start measuring their total testosterone once every six months or 12 months. And again, this is primarily to make sure you're not giving back too much. The the measurements may not be absolutely accurate. They are a guide for you to know how much you're giving. But as long as you're not hitting excessive levels on your measurements, then that usually is considered as, yes, you're within a physiological range of the testosterone.
0: I'm trying to think of all of our audience and listeners here. And I know we have so many people from all over the world now, but As you run a busy NHS clinic in the UK, once you've had a cancer diagnosis in the UK, what is access like um, to testosterone? What do you think? Is it very much postcode lottery?
1: Well, unfortunately, it is very much uh, where you live, how your GP is, uh, whether your GP is willing to do it as a primary care prescription, because it is an off-license medication. Off-license simply means that the prescribing doctor has to take the responsibility to give you the testosterone and then monitor it, whether it's the efficacy or side effect. And in the primary care, which is the basic GP settings in the NHS, uh, because it's off-license, not all doctors will be happy to prescribe. Many GPs are now updating themselves, getting to know more about testosterone through through training. And so we we are finding that more and more GPs now prescribe testosterone in the primary care. And hopefully, if that trend really picks up and stays, there should not be a problem in future getting prescriptions on the NHS when it's needed. But right now, there remains a, a big gap where women often have to be referred to a tertiary NHS clinic wait for some time before they get access to prescription. And of course, the availability of the products or preparations is also another problem. Is because there are no female-specific testosterone prescriptions licensed in the UK. And we often have to use the male preparations, make do with them to get a dose that works for women.
0: It's obviously anything but ideal, but I guess that's what why we're having this conversation because if care for management of menopausal symptoms after cancer was ideal, we wouldn't even be here recording this podcast episode. But I guess the good thing is the more awareness there is amongst uh, the primary care sector, the more education there is for GPs, the more GPs can help the general population with menopause. The more space you will have in menopause clinics for people with underlying conditions, such as cancer, because I feel a specialist clinic is there for exactly women like us who've got such specific needs, who need a multidisciplinary approach. You need to bring the oncologist in, the surgeon perhaps, and this is why we have specialist services. So the hope is that the more work can be done in primary care for the majority of the population, the more time you'll have for us.
1: That's right. That's very right.
0: We also do need a preparation that is licensed for women. I mean, do you know of anyone making anything at the moment?
1: Well, yes. I mean, there has been some progress, certainly. Um, So let me just quickly run through what is available for women who are on the NHS, or in the private sector. So in the private sector, we have a preparation called Androfem Cream. That's a testosterone cream that really originated from Australia, and now we're getting it in the UK. Uh, It is expensive. uh, And again, it depends on how much uh, you can afford financially on the private sector. Uh, But it is to be used every day. It comes in the form of a cream and usually the starting dose is 0.5 ml and you can increase if you don't get the efficacy uh, and don't have any side effects. If it's not the private sector, on the NHS, we use the male preparations and adapt them for female use because women often use a very tiny dose as compared to men. So we have different types of preparation. The pump form is called as a tostran, and it's two percent, and it's usually used one pump every other day. There are other gels called testogel and testim. These come in sachets or tubes, and the difficulty is you have to use one tenth of it every day, and sometimes it's very difficult to get the one tenth right because you can't really measure it accurately. Uh, Sometimes the sachet has to be opened and used one tenth at a time for 10 days, and again that can be a bit messy. The the aim is to give you about 5 milligrams a day. That's the dose you're looking for. So it's a 50 milligram sachet, you're using it for 10 days. So that's where we are. Uh, Some women of course do implants or pallets. These are currently again not easily available in the UK. Uh, women often used private services where implants are often imported from the US, where they use it quite often. But again, with implants, the cost and the availability becomes a limiting factor.
0: Yeah, because earlier in the conversation, you said we used to use um, implant, testosterone implants in the UK, but now we've moved to transdermal testosterone. Why has that changed? Is it because the sort of what you can put under the skin The implants aren't as good and the transdermal is better, or why has it changed?
1: Well, I think it's not stopped. The availability has become very restricted, partly to do with, I think, the implants uh, couldn't be uh, easily sold in the UK and had to be imported. The manufacturing and I think the regulation of how they were distributed uh, had some problems in the UK. Uh, which is why I think primarily, um, and I don't think there is any clinical reason why the implants went out of use widely. It is still available though. Some NHS units offer it, but majority of it gets done in the private sector.
0: Because you see so many women who are in menopause and struggling with their symptoms after a cancer diagnosis, I think it's so amazing to draw on your clinical and practical experience. Do you feel that the role of testosterone Is a useful component to integrate into someone's hormone replacement therapy sort of routine?
1: Yes, I certainly feel there is a specific subgroup of women where testosterone helps immensely. It's not for everyone. So I don't want to give an impression that every woman should choose to go on estrogen, progesterone and testosterone. Every woman will have her own choice. But I do find that women who have initially started on HRT for premature menopause or surgical menopause or natural menopause have taken good amounts of oestrogen, progesterone. We think they've really hit good levels. And yet some things are missing, the libido, the energy, the brain fog. I do see in my patients that when they add testosterone, they do get significant benefit. Now, who are these women who will benefit? Which is the subset? How do we identify them? We are quite far away from that because the research is so little. If you look at as a pure scientist, you look at the research and you say, there's no evidence for testosterone other than libido. That's a pure scientist in me talking about. There's not enough randomized trials. But as a clinician, when I sit in front of a patient in a clinic and I've given them testosterone, they understand that there is not enough data. They come back in six months and say to me, this is wonderful. It has changed my life. Others will come back and say, I tried it for six months. It does nothing. So you see that difference in how patients respond. That's the clinician in me. and not a scientist. So the call is for a big, good, robust, randomized trial, which looks at everything that testosterone can do other than libido. And that's when we'll have an answer. Is it really worth giving it? And who does it benefit? And the NIHR has given a call out now. So currently, the National Institute of Health uh, uh, is actually calling applications to do a huge multi-center study. And we're all looking forward to that.
0: Wonderful, wonderful news. Talk me through the side effects, though, because you mentioned the earlier.
1: Yeah. So testosterone generally is used in a tiny dose for women, as I said, about five milligrams a day. And that's really tiny dose, but does do good. So Side effects are minimal or almost uncommon or rare unless you exceed the dose. If you keep going up and up into supra-physiological range, above what is normal range, too high, then you will experience some side effect. As long as you stay within physiological range, it's very uncommon. If you're very sensitive, you can get a bit of oily skin, you can get acne, you can get a bit of hair growth on the body, hirsutism.
0: Well, Everywhere.
1: Well, it's usually where you apply, but if you exceed the dose, then it can be everywhere on the body. These are usually if you, as I said, use a bit excess. And if you go too high on the dose for many years, then you can also start noticing a few other effects. For example, deepening of voice. You might start getting hair thinning on the scalp and turn into alopecia. Clitoral enlargement has been reported rarely. Those are really extreme and uncommon effects, but something that's to be kept in mind so that you don't use excessive dose because you're feeling better. Just a quick caveat there is, if you're using it, best to use it on lower tummy or inner aspect of your thighs, whether you're using it once every other day or a tiny bit every day. You must make sure that the area is clean and dry, use it, and a couple of hours after, wash the areas because once you've applied the gel, it's gone in, after two hours, you can wash the area properly so that no one else gets into contact with it because there has been recent safety warning from the MHRA to say that you can accidentally pass it to children or your partner uh, and, and they can have some effects of testosterone absorption.
0: And so clearly wash your hands after you've Absolutely.
1: applied. after you've applied, yeah.
0: Now let's talk about these some more complex situations, all the women who have been diagnosed with a cancer that was hormone receptor positive, breast cancers, ovarian cancers, any other cancers. And perhaps their medical team have said hormone replacement therapy is not recommended for you. It's contraindicated. Does this also include testosterone or how much do we know about the role of testosterone after hormone dependent cancers?
1: So, good question, Dani. Um, so, the evidence is again limited, primarily because women who have hormone-dependent cancer, that includes breast cancer, haven't traditionally been offered HRT, haven't traditionally been offered testosterone as part of HRT or otherwise, except for a few groups or studies who do look at this. So, there's not wide amount of material available for us to rely on as a scientific evidence. The evidence that we have. So let me talk about the biggest group or the the evidence from the biggest studies. That comes usually from the U.S., uh, from from the group that works Glazier et al. They are the ones who publish most of the studies with this. And usually what they have done is combined testosterone for women who have survived breast cancer to treat their menopausal symptoms. And that includes all symptoms, insomnia, mood, cognition, uh, vasomotor symptoms, uh, energy level. So they use a testosterone implant which gives them continuous testosterone and then they combine it with a aromatase inhibitor this is the same medication that most women will get if they have hormone receptor positive tumor to stop them producing estrogen so that there's less risk of recurrence so if you combine the two it is thought that the testosterone will address the symptoms But the main risk for breast cancer comes from conversion of testosterone in the body to estrogen, which will not happen because it is the aromatase enzyme in the body that converts testosterone to estrogen. And if you block that, which is essentially what is done with aromatase inhibitor, you will only get the testosterone action. You won't get the estrogen action. So that is thought to be the theory how this can benefit women who have got estrogen dependent tumors, or have had treatment for it in the past, and we don't want it to come back. While they can safely use the testosterone action, which doesn't do that. That's the theory. Now, she has done a number of studies, more than 1,000 implants. She has published a couple of abstracts of uh, some 1,700 odd patients, specifically looking at breast cancer survivors. And the, the findings from those studies or papers are quite encouraging. Good relief from menopausal symptoms and no increased risk of recurrence. But the caveat is, of course, it's a single center experience. It is that one particular group. And we don't know whether that is replicated elsewhere or is it possible to replicate it? And is it true that in the long term they do have a low risk of recurrence or is this just one set of data and it might not be true? So we need to replicate it and do those studies elsewhere to understand whether this is true, that there is no increased risk, and whether testosterone on its own is effective enough to take care of most menopausal symptoms. That remains to be established.
0: And in this um, study that has been done, how long have the women been followed up for?
1: Well, generally, the most of the women I saw in the studies in the abstracts were about the follow-up was between three to five years. And so that is good long enough follow-up for most women, However, remember that that's not just enough, that the recurrences may happen later on, even after beyond 5, 10, 15 years. And so it's a short follow-up, but something that would usually happen with early studies. What we need is data on what these uh, women's long follow-up results were. And of course, more studies like that, combining testosterone with aromatase inhibitors with a big, large number, prospective follow-up to know, is this a strategy that would really work in future?
0: When you came to speak to me on the podcast before, I think it was, it is episode six, we spoke about two really big randomized control um, trials, the habits and the Stockholm, and you explained the outcome of those, um, other observational studies, and you really talked us through how much or how little, actually, should I say, we know about using hormone replacement therapy Uh, for women who've had breast cancer, those never mentioned testosterone, did they? Is there nothing this big, at at least, even though they weren't big, for the use of testosterone?
1: Unfortunately not. Um, So the studies about estrogen causing higher uh, recurrence in breast cancer survivors comes mainly from those randomized trials, which happened around, say, turn of the century, 2002-2003, and and such uh, big trials for testosterone do not exist. Uh, the worry often with use of testosterone in a woman who's had hormone dependent breast cancer is that once you give testosterone it will convert into estrogen in the body because that is the aromatase enzyme and so unless a woman is taking aromatase inhibitors that testosterone will mean that you're giving a little bit of estrogen back to the woman and you might be similarly increasing her risk of recurrence now As we discussed in the podcast where we looked at the breast cancer and the oestrogen, you will have that exceptional patient, you will have that exceptional woman who's tried everything non-hormonal and has come to the end of her patience and and, and, and tolerance where she's having horrendous symptoms. She would rather have a quality of life than go through all those symptoms. And in those situations, as I said, you do an exception, you do offer oestrogen to those women, Who understand that the risk of recurrence is high, but would rather live well than actually suffer from symptoms. And it's the same with testosterone. So we do have women who have chosen to take testosterone on its own for quality of life because they feel much better. And they know the risks could be higher because of conversion to estrogen, but they would rather have those risks on board than have a poor quality of life. So Again, it's kind of a two-way process where the physician, the oncologist, the hormone specialist and the patient do a joint decision to say, which is my priority. I know the risk may be higher, but I may still opt to take testosterone off license for some time. And, and there, are, there are those situations to happen.
0: And so I'm assuming there are many women at home now who are on tamoxifen after breast cancer, who are thinking, what do we know about Tamoxifen and testosterone, I'm assuming nothing?
1: That's right. So again, this is where estrogen taken alongside tamoxifen is thought to be safer than otherwise because the tamoxifen blocks receptors. But actually, the evidence isn't there. We don't have evidence for that. Uh, Because although the tamoxifen blocks receptors, your exogenous estrogen could compete with tamoxifen and and actually bind to those receptors and make tamoxifen less effective. So we certainly don't have data to say that if you take testosterone or estrogen side-by-side tamoxifen, it's less risky or is not going to cause recurrence. No, we don't have any data. The data is clear. If you take estrogen and you have a hormone-dependent cancer, your risk of recurrence is high. And I think the same will apply to testo. Unless we have better, uh, bigger studies, you cannot use testo. It's contraindicated. try everything else non-hormonal. Exceptional patients who just cannot carry on with their life may still take estrogen or testosterone, but they understand they have a little bit of risk on board. Mm.
0: Now I've been listening to and really hanging on to every single one of your words very intently, because you've just said with the uh, perhaps added or reintroduction of estrogen and perhaps now testosterone, we just don't know enough, the risk of cancer recurrence is higher, but I know we want to know by how much higher, I know you're not going to be able to give us all these answers, and everyone is t- everyone's case is totally different. But also, dare I say, the people and the studies—it's not that clear cut, is it, or is it?
1: Very difficult because again, we go back to those three or four studies: the habits and the and the liberate and a few others. Overall risk difference was tiny, although there was increased risk of recurrence, but it's actually few women. Uh, something like eight or 10 women in some of the studies who get who got more breast cancer than others out of 300 women. Uh, and it's, it's a similar one with uh, when you look at uh, retrospective or observational studies. In fact, some studies show on HRT, there was no increase in any recurrence. Others show there was an increased recurrence. If you do a long term follow up of some of the RCTs, there was no difference at the end in 10 years. So, if you look at it, it's a minefield of data, and you find that the risk is anyway very small, but no one wants to get their cancer back. It's one thing that is dreading, the one thing that really puts women away from treatment. So, the short answer to the question is we don't have data to quantify what percentage increase there will be. It will be a small risk. Most women will not be affected by HRT. However, for those who may be affected, it will be a terrible thing if the cancer comes back. Yeah. So you kind of take a safe approach and say, no, unless really this is completely out of control and the symptoms are horrendous and you can't carry on with your day-to-day life. That's when the HRT can be an exceptional option.
0: And I think I really need to add here that there are so many women I personally speak to who might be 5, 10, 15 years down the line from their initial diagnosis And it's not that they have such a poor quality of life. They've moved on and life has changed and they know they're different, but they're really, really fed up with some of the symptoms of their menopausal experiences that are not debilitating. They don't stop them in their tracks fully, but they're fed up. It's sometimes things like, real bad anxiety and they've tried loads of things. And every woman I speak to is amazing. Women are trying so much and they're working so hard and they've gone to counseling and they've tried CBT and they might have even tried beta blockers and antidepressants. But sometimes that surgical menopause for some women is not like I said, debilitating, but sometimes we just think, I just want to live again. I just want to feel good again. And we're fed up of this, not feeling not feeling great and i can see that we deserve a conversation but at that point we're often been discharged from our oncology team we might not be able to access a surgeon or a breast care nurse and i feel the least we deserve is another conversation with an expert clinician
1: it is it is but i think that's where the nhs can do something and we're all trying to kind of lobby in for that is a long term support for cancer survivors At the moment, I think it's really not there. So a woman who has had many years down the line and has different needs, it may not just be hormones, it may be some other system in the body and there's no one to go back to. I think there should be long-term care where a woman should be able to speak to her GPN and and be referred to a specific clinic that she needs. So such a woman, say seven years or 10 years down the line, is feeling lots of menopausal side effects of treatments, and now wants to go back and discuss hormones, should be able to get a referral from a GP, come and see us in the menopause clinic. And then we can discuss the pros and cons, just like we've done on this podcast. More so, the longer you are away from your initial cancer diagnosis and treatment, the less the chance of recurrence in terms of you can safely consider hormones much more confidently than if it's just one year or six months from your initial diagnosis. It's not that it's risk-free, but you become more confident as you go along. You've managed a lot of other symptoms. There are some symptoms that are bothering you. Then you might be able to more accept some small hormonal interventions than not because you're so far down the journey from your cancer diagnosis and treatment. So it's really useful to have that discussion what options exist non-hormonal hormonal hormonal, and then make that informed decision. A lot of women now in my own experience actually do consider hormones taking the risks on board as you go down five or ten years because they realize It's about quality of life, their bones, their heart, their cognitive function, so many benefits which needs to be balanced against that risk.
0: And as a clinician, that can't be easy either. So are you sort of saying if you talk to your patient, you explain to her how much or how little we know about the risks and the potential benefits, and as long as you're woman the person that you are sitting in front of understands all of this and it's really quite complex that you're happy to support her in whatever she feels is right to do is does it work like that
1: well said Danny I think you're getting really good at this now so it's absolutely the the key word here is that factual information Uh, because I say you shouldn't be saying hormones are good and because I say that hormones are terrible you shouldn't be scared It's both ways. I should be just giving the woman the factual information where there is evidence, some evidence, this is it. It means X, Y, Z, but there's no evidence. We can't say whether this is good or bad. We have to wait for more trials. And then it's the woman who will take that information on board, ask more questions, and then make a decision. As long as she understands what is right for her, does know the risks, does know what benefits there are, I think, I would always respect her decision.
0: And we've talked so much about the risks and the benefits of, say, testosterone in this episode, but also in our previous episode, but there are risks and benefits. And sometimes when we look at something from a three-dimensional sort of picture, it is really, really difficult, isn't it? Because when I was weighing up whether I should go into a surgically onset menopause because my removal of my ovaries um, was because I am a BRCA1 carrier. And so it was a personal decision because there are many women in my situation who do not remove the ovaries. So once I decided I'm going to remove my ovaries, it was also, when am I going to remove my ovaries? I had guidance from my medical team, but it was still a personal choice. But if I focused my risk versus benefits of analysis on just my bone health, uh, no, I don't think just removing my ovaries would have been the best thing because being plunged into a menopause at the age of 39, we know has risks to my bone health. But if I just looked at my, for example, risk of reducing my chances of ovarian cancer, and we lost so many women in my family to ovarian cancer, of course, removing the ovaries was the absolute best thing to do. And I could look at 20 different points in my body and for my life that, and I could weigh up the risk versus benefit analysis. And I, so I feel it's great what you do, but it must come with a little bit of handholding because every woman will have so many different and personal risk versus benefit conversations going on in her head.
1: No, you're very right, Danny. And sometimes it's a very difficult role uh, when you're in the clinic and the patient asks you, what would you do in my situation? Oh,
0: yes. or What would you do for your daughter? That's
1: what (laughs) my mother-in-law always
0: asks.
1: Yes, a very tricky one. But I, I understand where that comes from, because... It's for patients to absorb all the information, the scientific data, benefits versus risk, make a decision can be very difficult. As a physician, I find it tricky and difficult. So no wonder patients will have an even more difficult task. But my own uh, sort of experience is it doesn't happen in one session. Yeah. You often have to work with the patient, work with the woman, look at the holistic picture. What are her expectations with regards to quality of life? What else is she doing to maintain her good heart, bone, cognitive health? How likely are they at danger in terms of her lifestyle? What if, how long has she been since the cancer diagnosis treatment? What if, if she was putting herself at more risk by following unhealthy lifestyle or smoking alcohol, et cetera, and all that needs to be balanced. And as you go through a few sessions with the patient, you realize what the priority is. How likely will she benefit from HRT? That's when hand-holding happens. And I say, I feel you will benefit. I feel you will do better. I feel your risks are lower than X, Y, Z. And that's how after a few sessions, you come to that joint decision with the patient. It doesn't happen in one go. Um, So yes, there is a bit of physician's role to guide. But again, the primary choice comes from the woman, uh, as long as you've given factual information.
0: And I guess the thing to add here is nothing is forever. You can have and seek the conversation with the menopause specialist. You can go through the process. You can perhaps try a medication or, or decide against it, and you can change your mind. And I feel like it's almost what I've gone through with my process with food. And initially, I was very much, um, I thought I had to go vegan and I had to do things a certain way. And I almost thought I... I had to fit into this role, but I now eat how I want to eat. I don't need to justify myself. I don't need to tell everyone how I eat. I don't need a label and I can change my mind. And the same should happen when we decide for or against a treatment or a medication. We can try it, see if there's benefits. And if these benefits are worth perhaps to us, then we can go with it for a little bit of time. and. Equally, we can say in a few months down the line, I'm going to change my mind because my worry perhaps about a recurrence is increased now. And so it's really, really important to to do what we think is right for us at the right time and at the moment in life that this is appropriate.
1: Very right. And it's an evolving area. Again, we're having this conversation now. Two or three years down the line, there will be more therapies, more trials published, more evidence coming in, more testosterone preparations, perhaps. And we might have to rethink what we're saying today. Similarly, there will be women who have tried testo, tried HRT, have found no benefit and have gone off it and gone back to their lifestyle or non-hormonal interventions because they feel safer. That's completely valid. So sometimes, as you said, it's a matter of giving all the options a try and then deciding which one fits for you. And of course, science will keep changing, so we'll have more options in future than what the limitations are today.
0: Thank you. That feels really hopeful because in preparing for this podcast, I thought we'd be done in three minutes because there is so little we know. <laughs> but the more I talk to you and so many other experts on the podcast the more I know it's not just about the facts and, you know, the specific data that we have. It's very much about whatever side we fall on, it affects us a hundred percent. It's so very real when you are the person having to make that decision. And so it's much more about talking about it, mulling it over, weighing it up and having more conversations and going on that journey of exploration, I feel. So, yeah, thank you for lending your time to talk about it in such detail.
1: Absolutely. I think it has a specific role in a specific subgroup of women who we don't identify well right now, but hopefully in future will. But it certainly helps women who have not had a straightforward journey with the regular HRT. For some, it doesn't work. And then, of course, it means that they can stop it if it doesn't work for them.
0: I can't thank you enough, Vikram, for this conversation and i hope everyone at home listening to this has got their own thought processes well i'm sure you have going on here your own feelings towards this um and that might very much differ from what you have heard from me and how i sort of think about it and that's totally okay i feel every single day when i speak to some of you i really feel i really want to make this a non-judgmental space and to make sure that we all feel supported even if our opinions totally differ on a subject or two i feel we can support each other because it is a difficult journey to navigate and especially with the lack of evidence we have in some areas like testosterone it's really difficult to know what to do and i want to just round this conversation up with a poem And I hope it resonates. I hope you don't think it's weird. But sometimes it's quite nice when we're in our thinking head that we can take a little step back and just let it all be and then revisit the conversation at a later time. This is called Stop Comparing You Are Life Itself by Jeff Foster. You're unique, your whole journey is wholly original. We may all be expressions of the same ocean of consciousness, But at the same time, we're all unique expressions of that very ocean. Totally unique in our waveness. Don't compare yourself with anyone else. When you start comparing, you devalue your own unique, irreplaceable gifts, talents and truths, and disconnect from your unique present experience. Don't compare this moment with any image of how it could, should what might have been. Healing is possible when you say yes to where you're at now, even if it's not where you dreamt you would be by now. Trust, and trust sometimes that you cannot trust. Perhaps even your inability to trust can be trusted here, and even the feeling that you cannot hold the moment is itself already being held. Thank you everyone for engaging and listening to this week's episode on the podcast and I'll be back next week.